Hello, and welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I am your host, Dr. M, and this is podcast number 26. This week, we sit down with Professor Bonnie J. Kaplan. Dr. Kaplan is the Professor Emeritus in the Cummings School of Medicine at the University of Calgary in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. She is originally from Ohio and did most of her training in the United States uh, at Brandeis University as well as University of Chicago, where her interests lie in the biological basis of behavior, and that led to a postdoctoral training and research faculty appointment at Yale University Department of Neurology in Connecticut. She, over her 40-plus year career, has published widely on the biological basis of developmental disorders, mental health, especially the contribution of nutrition to brain development and brain function. She was the founding principal investigator of the Alberta Pregnancy Outcomes and Nutrition Longitudinal Study, and she has over 180 peer-reviewed publications and textbook contributions to her credit. She retired from full-time academic research in 2016 and has turned her attention to raising funds for nutritional research in mental health. Her distinguished efforts over her career looking to find how, how nutrition specifically helps with the mental health challenges of humans has earned her a variety of awards, including the Dr. Rogers Prize in 2019 for excellence, as well as a 2021 award of the top seven over 70 in Calgary. She, along with Professor Julia Rucklidge, have written a book called The Better Brain, published by HarperCollins and is available today. And we're going to get into a good bit of the information that is available in this book for us to understand and then look to how this data that she has spent her career compiling into this book and into her research has allowed humans to have better outcomes when they have mental health disorders through nutrition and supplementation. It has been long established that the complex integrated neurologic system needs multiple specific cofactors, including micronutrients like minerals and vitamins, in order to play out the official cellular mechanisms that lead to the effects that we want to see with normal neurologic function. The Cofactors have to play a synergistic role, which means they work together in concert, and many of them are cofactors in the same enzymatic reaction. So, therefore, it is necessary to get these cofactors either through diet, preferably, or potentially through supplementation in cases where the dietary inputs aren't enough to meet the demands of either the cellular function that's occurring or based on genetic polymorphisms that you actually need more than is that in that is expected. Over the past 50 plus years, it is well known that mental health disorders are on the rise at the same time that we are seeing a significant decline in the quality of human diets, specifically becoming more monotonic in the sense that the diets tend to have less variety and more commonality, which makes the nutrients that are coming to the human system 
not as varied as they used to be and certainly not coming in the synergistic forms of a broad spectrum of vegetables and fruits, nuts, beans, and seeds that are the main sources of most of these cofactors. We base our dietary recommendations, otherwise known as the recommended dietary allowances, on the ability to treat deficiency states, i.e. if you have vitamin D deficiency, you have rickets. But that says nothing about if you have enough vitamin D to not have rickets, does that mean you have enough vitamin D for all cellular function? Likewise, vitamin C necessary for scurvy prevention is only at a level that therefore prevents the disease that we call scurvy, but it says nothing again about being completely sufficient for all metabolic activity in the body that's related to vitamin C. And we know this occurs for things like zinc, B vitamins, magnesium, calcium, selenium, and so many other minerals and vitamins. The problem with most studies to date have they been mostly done in single cofactor nutrients, which rarely ever exist in the human body as a single event. Most events, again, occurring in the body are a synergy of multiple cofactors being used along a system of enzymatic reactions that lead to the outcome that we call the development of neurotransmitters, the development of energetics, bioenergetics, cellular activity, and just generally what we see of as neurologic function. Thus, to me, it is exceedingly exciting to get a guest like Dr. Kaplan on to talk about what the research shows in the discussion points on what are the biochemical pathways that are involved in brain activity, specifically neurotransmitter function and bioenergetics of the brain. And do we have an adequate upstream understanding of what we need to do bioenergetically and cofactor-wise to have these functions in the human neurologic system perform at optimal levels so that we don't see disease? Dr. Kaplan has spent her career studying this information and giving us an opportunity to now get it in a podcast form where we can learn orally what the downstream risks are of not having adequate sources of synergistic micronutrients and cofactors in our systems that then can lead to diseases that we see of as mental health. We do get into a little bit of the COVID discussion, how mental health has gotten worse under the COVID realities, and uh, some other really interesting aspects of how Dr. Kaplan sees the, the future of healthcare, specifically as it relates to mental health. So without spending any more time discussing this, let's get into my conversation with Dr. Bonnie J. Kaplan. Hello, Bonnie Kaplan, and welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First Podcast. It is such a pleasure to have you on the show from across the uh, divide there in Canada. It is it is my pleasure to see you today. And it's my pleasure to be here. You uh, escaped my lectures at the Center for Integrative Medicine at uh, the University of Arizona because you were a leader and you went through the program before they put me on the faculty. So well, here we are. <laughs> Lucky for me, I still was able to follow your research because uh, everybody had talked about you, so I was able to see everything. So I'm grateful to have you on the show to talk about what you have studied and, and educated the world about the past uh, multi-decade. So I'm going to start us off with something you actually wrote in 
complementary and integrated treatments in psychiatric practice. And you said the following, micronutrients is a term that refers to all essential minerals and vitamins that are required in smaller trace amounts to sustain health. Micronutrients play a role in virtually every biological, chemical, and physiological process. They serve as cofactors required for activity of enzymes and other regulatory proteins, including transcription factors that modify gene expression. Micronutrients also play essential roles in receptors, transporters, ion channels, and pump mechanisms. They are crucially involved in neurotransmitter synthesis, intracellular signaling, membrane function, mitochondrial function, oxidative damage, inflammation, microbiome profiles, drug metabolism, and many other biological processes. I pulled that piece because you literally laid out the framework for everything that's going on that we need to help people understand how to effectively change how the brain works when it's going in the wrong direction. So as we get into this, this discussion today, I want to hone in on your work, specifically the biochemistry of function and its enemy dysfunction in the brain. Many of the studies that you've cited of individual micronutrients, save for lithium and folate, have returned mostly negative results. And that's really interesting, but your work is different. So with all of that as a backdrop to start this discussion, let's start by unpacking first the state of mental health in the US and Canada. And a second question is how did COVID really mess that all up? So oh take my it. gosh, <laughs> you covered the waterfront there. Actually, I yeah. think that the quotation covers the waterfront too. Well, why don't I talk about that quotation first, okay? So, um, you know, I sometimes think that we have, as we've moved from an agrarian uh, lifestyle post-World War II to being mostly an urban society, that people forget why we eat. You know, before I got into this area of research, I used to wish I could just eat one meal a year. I just thought eating was a waste of time. It just got in the way of what things I wanted to do. And now I understand that we have to eat often, not even once a day, but at least at least three times a day. And we need to do it because of our greedy little brain. Our brain is dependent upon a constant infusion of nutrients. And that's true of other organs too, but the brain just happens to be the greediest. And so that list that you just read out um, it is a reminder that, that, we, that we eat for a reason, that our cells are dependent upon nutrients to be, you know, for their growth, for their maintenance, for their dynamic physical activity. And, and so eating is not for entertainment. That's something that's happened in our lifetime, isn't it, Chris? Right. That people think of eating as entertainment. It's not entertainment. We shouldn't think of it that way. It is a social activity, though, so I see how it kind of evolved. But, um, you know, we eat because our cells need those nutrients at every level and everywhere. So that's the first really kind of blanket comment. Now, um, where should I go from there? Which topic did you raise? So, so let's let's go first to the the situation of mental health in the U.S. and Canada right now. Let's okay. lay the framework for why we need to even focus so heavily on on the micronutrients. So, yeah. why is mental health a struggle right now, and why and how has it become so much worse in the last fifty to hundred years, based on what your research has shown? Well, obviously, I think nutrition is part of that. But let me talk about what the uh, 
um, what the data show about prevalence of mental health. And I need to use just a little bit of jargon for your audience. Point prevalence is the frequency of something at a given point in time. Lifetime prevalence is the occurrence of whatever that is across the lifespan. <clears throat> and when I was you know, in training in the 1970s, it was pretty well accepted that um, there was a prevalence rate, a point prevalence rate of mental disorders of about 1%. And there were some people who were very alarmed at that because they felt that the earlier research, and there's a wonderful book from 2001 by Ifor showing that earlier data from the 18th century suggested it was lower than that. And he thought that 1% was like really too high. At any rate, 1% was a pretty acceptable level across many cultures, et cetera. Well, what is it now? It's 20%. Now, I can remember about five to 10 years ago, there was a whole spate of articles in the psychiatry journals that said, oh, the prevalence rate of mental disorders isn't really increasing. It's just that people are more likely to come forward and seek help. And of course we want that. We don't want to discourage that. And by the way, the DSM has gone from, I don't know, a, a few categories to a gazillion categories. So you can diagnose a whole lot more things. And so there's no real increase. Chris, I haven't seen an article like that in more than five years. I think everyone recognizes it's genuinely increasing and that includes pre-pandemic. Now that's the point prevalence from 1% to 20% in my lifetime. That's crazy. Yep. But the light, and that's by the way, World Health Organization data for the 20%. The WHO says that the lifetime, do you know what the lifetime prevalence is from the WHO? I don't, but I'm going to guess it's probably 70%. 50%. 50%. Yeah. Wow. So one in two, one in two of us, according to the WHO, is going to be diagnosed with not just having a down day, not just feeling anxious, but diagnosed with a mental disorder in our lifetime. That's staggering. That to me, it's staggering and it's insane. It makes absolutely no sense based on how it was when, when I was in training. So obviously I think there is a huge problem. But there's nothing as complex as human behavior in my book. And so to say that it's all because of nutrition would be ridiculous. There right. are other problems. So let me kind of attack that. In my opinion, by the way, I'll just give you right. the bottom line first. I really think that what's happening is a lack of resilience. Because, you know, the pandemic is pretty damn bad. But um, my parents and grandparents had not only the pandemic of 1918, the flu epidemic, they, as we called it then, but they had World War I, they had World War II, they had the depression, you know, with all the suicides and everything. I mean, it was, it was catastrophic what they all lived through. And they still had only maybe 1% mental disorders. Right. So what's changed? Well, first, I think that one thing is that we, we know about problems more. Um, we think about the lack of communication that was going on back then, and, and maybe people didn't get as scared about things because they didn't know as much because it was happening over in Europe, or maybe they were in Europe and, and it was happening in a different country. So we're, we're hit constantly by negative media. That's partly it. But you can't ignore the change in our eating habits. How did my parents and grandparents eat? they ate food. And what our people are eating now 
is not food. And I'm going to quote you the American government latest statistics from N. Haynes. I don't know if anybody else has talked about the N. Haynes surveys on your podcast. They have. So good. So it stands for the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, which, by the way, just had its 50th birthday. So this great government system has been surveying the American dietary habits for over 50 years now, since 1971. And the latest, and then they collect the data and then scientists come in and analyze it. And the latest scientific data is appalling. What it shows is that it has gotten so bad that over two thirds of the caloric intake of our children up to the age of 19 is now from ultra processed industrialized chemical products, which are not food. I won't call it ultra processed food because to me it's not food is what we eat to build and maintain our cells and make them work. There is nothing in these products which is food. And in fact, these industrialized chemical products that people are buying, um, well, it, it, this, there's a funny story here. My former student and my co-author of The Better Brain, Julia Rutledge, who's on the faculty at the University of Canterbury in Christchurch, New Zealand, about two years ago, I think she and I were doing a podcast together and she said, she said, you know, people would be better off eating the cardboard boxes than what's inside. And we all laughed. And she said, no, really, because they'd be getting fiber and fiber exactly. is, lack of fiber is a huge problem. <laughs> so the end of that funny story is that less than 10 days ago, my local newspaper here in Calgary, Alberta carried, you know, you, they have editorial car cartoons on the editorial page. They had a cartoon and someone's looking at uh, nutrition guidelines and, and processed stuff and said, you know, we'd be better off eating the box. <laughs> so I sent that to Julia. Anyway, it's, it's, a, it's funny because it's true. There are, I mean, there are just no micronutrients in there. Yeah, and it's sad because to your point, if 66% of the calories, which is what I call them, they're basically calories. They're, they're, it is not a food. It's just a way of getting a, an energy source, which is not a problem in the country or in Canada. The energy yeah. is not a need. We have more than enough energy to last us quite a long time. So we're essentially eating food because we like the taste of it and we're getting calories, but we're not worried about anything else, which is in your point in your work and to my point i think that's the major driver of systemic inflammation which is then driving all oh, the yeah. problems that we see of as you name the disorder i just finished interviewing a specialist uh, in in microbiome and gut health from children's hospital of philadelphia dr albenberg and one of the things she talked about was to your point in ultra processed foods one of the things that's in there are a lot of these these emulsifiers and the emulsifiers are known to be very irritating to the gut lining and so to there's not one single thing but the interesting reality is the confluence of problems is coming from one major major source which is ultra processed foods and and i think that's very very true and and i echo your sentiments about how much of a struggle the mental health data is because it does say that we're getting worse and people will try and parse through and say, Oh no, we're better at diagnosing all this. I'm sorry. You know, it, it, we're seeing it at the ground level in my office. You know, mm -hmm. when I first started, I say this in many of my podcasts, but you know, milk protein tolerance where kids can't tolerate the casein protein used to be a rare entity 23 years ago. Now it feels like it's close to one in four. And that is not an, that is not a judgment difference. It's not like all of a sudden I'm judging that I'm seeing more of it now. This is true reality. True. So let's start to unpack your work regarding the greedy brain. Cause I love the way you say that. 
Okay, God, you got a question for them. I, I do. I want to, um, I feel like I left a loose end. Go, <laughs> tie it up. Two, two loose ends. One loose end is I'm going to try to get you to stop using the phrase ultra processed food. It's ultra okay. processed products. Okay. Okay. So we're not going to call right. it food anymore. But the other one is uh, seriously is the um, data I was quoting about two thirds of the caloric intake being uh, that was for children. Okay. But the adult, I don't want any of your adults out there to think that they're doing a good job because for adults, it was 57%. Children, 67%. Adults, 50%. And by the way, I often quote a study from 1950 that took, I think it was 36 healthy young men. This is part of the um, uh, Minnesota starvation studies that came out of World War II when they were looking at people who had been through the camps and had survived. And um, there was a great interest in understanding the effect of starvation. And one study um, uh, that they did looked at mental health. So they took 36 young, healthy men who agreed to go on a diet for six months that gave them 50% of their caloric and nutrient intake. Now, our people are not getting 50% of their caloric intake. Unfortunately, we're still getting tons of calories. But what those data from NHANE show is that they have, our society is voluntarily eliminating 50% or more of the nutrients that their brains used to get and their bodies, okay, that they used to get. So to me, it's quite a relevant study. And so what happened in six months? All the symptoms of depression and, and anxiety emerged, including self-harm, including um, one possible psychosis, and also uh, inability to pay attention. So you could even say ADHD was in there. So we've known, that was 1950, Chris, we've known that if you cut your nutrient intake in half, that you're depriving your brain of things that it needs to function well. And along those same lines, I will, I will come back to your, you're going to have to remind me of where you want me to go next, but no worries. Um, just relevant here, are you familiar with the predictive studies the, their longitudinal prospective studies that take people who have no mental health problems, describe how they eat, and then they sit back and they wait for two to six years is the rate. Well, one of them is like 10 to 15 years and ask, does dietary pattern predict risk for the emergence of a mental health problem? Have you seen yep. any of those? Yep. Okay. So there aren't many because these are expensive and more difficult to do than a lot of all those correlational studies. But um, the one that I like to cite, you're a pediatrician, right? There's one that was in children and it was done in Canada and it was published in pediatrics, I think. Mm -hmm. Lowen is the first author, it's from the University of Alberta. They had about 3000 children in the fifth grade who they characterized their dietary pattern. They, they characterized their mental health and then they described them in terms of nine um, pediatric society lifestyle guidelines, like what they should be eating. Six of them were on, on diet, what they should be eating, like few sodas, healthier food, et cetera. And then three of the guidelines involved screen time and um, one was on exercise, okay? And they were able to predict the, two years later who would be referred for a mental health problem. And not only that, there's a financial implication. When they did their, um, their multivariate regression analysis, they were able to show that for every additional guideline followed, there was 15% fewer 
physician visits. Right. That reminds me a bit of the Appleton, Wisconsin uh, high yes. school study. Yes. It wasn't a longitudinal in that respect, but it was where they intervened, took away all the bad foods and watched what happened with the children. And it was quite amazing. The the aggressive behaviors, the uh, mood, dis the sort of that mood swings, the mood disorders, the dysthymia, all across the board decreased. And and I, I remember one thing that always stuck with me one day a year that have what was called the cheat day. And it was the day where the kids were allowed to eat anything just like the old days. And the next day was the number one day of the year for absences and issues at the school. Mm -hmm. And so if you're ever looking for a way to see cause and effect, I think that was pretty darn clear. Yeah. yeah absolutely. So back All to right. your question, which I've lost. <laughs> what well, let's <laughs> go now to the point of your work, which is, so the grain is greedy, greedy. greedy. The, I just said that backwards. The brain mm -hmm. is greedy and it wants a lot of, macronutrients but it also needs a lot yeah. of micronutrients and for the for the audience listening macro being your proteins your fats and your carbohydrates but micro being vitamins and minerals that provide services to the cells to complete enzymatic functions and stuff so let's go there based on your work because clearly as i stated in the beginning single micronutrient research has not borne out great work in giving us positive outcomes but the synergistic effect is the way I think it makes the most sense. So take it from there. Sure. So we call that single nutrient uh, approach magic bullet thinking, and it does not reflect human physiology at all. There, in addition to the magic bullet studies, which is a complete waste of your tax dollar and mine, um, the, there are people who have their, I call them favorite few. And I think it's often people who kind of understand what two or three or four or five micronutrients do. So let's give them together. And again, it's a waste of tax money in terms of research. And, you know, clinically, you're going to help somebody, but uh, it doesn't make sense. It's not based on human physiology. So um, if there were one word that I could add to every elementary school curriculum, and, and by the way, also, I know it's in medical schools, but I would like to, <laughs> to be emphasized more. It's the word cofactor. So most, most, if not all, of our metabolic processes are controlled by enzymes. They're called enzymatic reactions. But enzymes cannot work optimally without an abundant supply of cofactors. And every metabolic step has its own different kind of set of cofactors that are needed. But I have yet to find one in the brain, and if anyone out there can show me one, I'm, I'm interested, anyone in the brain that doesn't need vitamins and minerals. So how many of them? Well, let's go back to the way, if I may talk about how plants grow. Mm -hmm. If we have healthy soil, which in itself is a huge problem, we have a half a chapter on the soil microbiome. We're always talking about the gut microbiome, but the soil microbiome is extremely important. And the regenerative agriculture movement is something that your listeners might want to look into. But anyway, I have to skip over that to simplify it for you for this, or I'll keep you here all day. But basically the soil, if it's healthy, should have roughly 15 minerals. And these are, are um, things you've heard of, things like calcium, magnesium, zinc, uh, trace minerals like selenium, et cetera. If those 15 minerals are there, crops absorb them. And what they do is they use them to manufacture roughly 15 vitamins. And then in a healthy and whole world, we humans come along, 
we eat those plants or we eat the animals who've eaten the plants if we're not vegetarians and we consume roughly 30 micronutrients, vitamins and minerals. Along the way, we should also be getting some omega-3 fatty acids, which it's hard to call them a micronutrient, but obviously so important for our cell walls and hearts and so forth. So those 30 micronutrients, what are they doing? Well, if you're consuming them, they are uh, going through your bloodstream at, a, at an unbelievable rate because your, your brain is only about 2% of your body. And yet it is absorbing over 20% of the micronutrients in the blood. It's, it's actually, I'm saying that awkwardly. Let me try saying it again. Um, 20 to 50% of the um, activity, metabolic activity is being provided to the brain. And in fact, I'll tell you why I got the numbers mixed up there. You can think of it a different way that we have roughly four to six quarts of blood in our body. And um, so you would think that only 2% of that would be in your brain every given minute, but it's much higher than that. It's close to 25% is going through your brain, perfusing it, going in and out all the time. Now, obviously oxygen is a big reason for that. Our brain really needs a lot of oxygen. And you know, it's also removing waste products and it's taking immunologic factors, et cetera. But it's also taking all those vitamins and minerals that you cleverly consumed so that they would feed your brain. So that's why cofactors are so important. And that's why looking at the research on single nutrients is ridiculous. It's, I mean, we all thought vitamin D was going to cure depression, right? Well, that's you know, vitamin D is really important, but it's, it's one nutrient. And if you look at the metabolic pathways, which, you know, we have a simplified diagram in chapter two of our book, because this is so important to me. I don't think, I don't think I would have written the book if I hadn't been allowed to put in at least one <laughs> metabolic pathway. Um, it's just phenomenal, all the different nutrients that are needed. So that's why we have to eat. But if we're eating ultra processed products, we are not getting those vitamins and minerals. And so we are starving our brains. Yeah. I want to pause you there and ask to uh, say two things. One, I find it fascinating that your analogy to plants and the soil is miracle Grow, top seller at Lowe's and Home Depot, right? So clearly this is a micronutrient product, I'm guessing, based on what they're putting in it to feed the plant because the soil gets depleted over time. And yet it sells like crazy or... Better yet, my wife goes and, and visits a local farmer who's more into the whole world of what you're saying, regenerative farming. And she buys specific earth-based things that provide mm. those same nutrients, right? But mm. to the point, we do this all the time in farming. If our local home farm or in a major farm uh, that's producing uh, agricultural products for sale, but yet in the body, we don't look at this as the same need right? As a medical science, right? So physicians talk all day long about drugs. Reductionist medicine drives me batty mm -hmm. where it's like, okay, here is your pill, allopurinol for your uric acid problem, but we're not talking upstream what drives uric acid, right? Uric acid is driven mm -hmm. primarily by sugar consumption, specifically fructose, high fructose corn syrup. Mm -hmm. Yet we're not talking about it. So we reduce it down to a single nutrient problem. Oh, uric acid is overproduced. It's got to be the body doing it wrong. I'm sorry, I'm mm -hmm. done with that. The body yeah. doesn't make big mistakes. The human makes mistakes to allow the body to then make them 
turn into disease because of our lifestyle choices. So that's, you know, that to me is, I think, fascinating. And then, you know, I would like to hear about the one pathway you put in your book. What was the pathway and what did it need? Because I want people to hear where it goes. Was it tryptophan to serotonin? What was it? it? It is a little tiny corner of the tryptophan pathway, which there's a funny story behind this, Chris. Maybe 20 years ago, I found when I would talk about the importance of nutrients for our brain function, audiences didn't understand. So I thought, I'm going to show them. (laughs) So I went online and I clipped out a little bit of the tryptophan to serotonin pathway. And it is defined by the amount I could get on one slide. And that's why it's limited to that. Obviously it's you know way more complex when you look at the real pathways. But then I showed each, and I didn't put the fancy names on for enzymes and all got too messy. So I put every enzyme as an arrow and you click on an arrow online and you can ask, well, what are the cofactors that are required for that enzymatic step to occur? And those I put in little boxes. And so in one, tiny little corner that fit on slides before we had the wide style of sliding. <laughs> um, I've been using the same one all of these years showing that in just that slide, I think it's uh, 15 micronutrients are needed. And then my colleague from Oregon Health and Science University, Jenny Johnstone, who um, has been doing some, some of the great studies on broad spectrum treatment, she said, Bonnie, people are going to think it's unique to serotonin. Here, I'm making one for dopamine. So now we have one for dopamine. And then I thought, well, wait a minute. People don't realize that, that it's okay, that you're, it's good that you're eating things like fish oil or, or better yet fish. But do you realize that that is not metabolized to EPA and DHA unless you have the right cofactor? So now I've got one for omega-3s and 6s. And I'm also, you'll love this, I show one for mitochondria which has, I think, about 15 to 20 micronutrients right. required so for ATP actually, to production. In preparation for this talk, I actually pulled a slide. And for the listeners to see, tryptophan oh. is the beginning precursor to serotonin the neurotransmitter that everybody knows from their antidepressant called SSRIs, right? Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So if you happen to have been placed on one of these, this is a way of increasing serotonin in the in the synapse between, between the neurons. And nobody talks about, again, at the patient level, well, if you need more serotonin, well, what are the upstream needs, right? So you clearly want the amino acid tryptophan, but you need vitamin B6, vitamin B3, zinc, B9, and magnesium for the first conversion of tryptophan to 5-hydroxytryptophan. And then you can need vitamin B6 again. Oh, but oh, by the way, you need vitamin C now, and then zinc, folate, and magnesium. And so to your point, the 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 main piece of all of these biochemical pathways, which actually made my head spin sideways in med school and college, but now I absolutely love it because it all makes more sense now to me, is that without these cofactors, specifically even just one cofactor can slow down the process of converting tryptophan to serotonin, which could then sabotage your hormone neurotransmitter functions, right? So when you think about this, and clearly you've looked at it from the synergy side, food is so important primarily because of the synergy is my guess. Take it from there. What do you think about the process of consuming food as well as then I want to now slip into your research around actual micronutrient supplementation? 
So I am a food first person, um, as is my co-author, Julia Rutledge. We want healthier food. I, I speak to agricultural groups all the time who are very excited to learn that what they're trying to do is relevant for human brain function. Um, so without a doubt, we, I mean, the very fact that the NHANES data saying, shows that we're making such terrible choices shows you that we could do a whole lot better when we go shopping. We should not be eating um, a third or, or more of our caloric intake from rubbish, which is what those ultra processed packaged things are. We have to go back to eating whole food. So that's number one. And that's um, in terms of schools, that's what needs to be taught in my opinion, what a cofactor is and why we have to eat whole foods. Um, remind me, I'll make a note, I'm gonna come back to phytonutrients. So, um, but the, uh, there's also, as you know, a real downside to eating that ultra processed stuff in terms of harming our brain. And there isn't as much research on it, but you just referred to some of it in terms of the uric acid issue. And so I don't think it's a good message to give to be scaring people that, oh, this stuff is hurting your brain. But I, I usually educate in terms of this is what your brain needs and it needs it every every minute of every day, almost 25% of your blood supply, every 60 seconds is going through your brain. And so make better choices. Um, I think I've branched out with that answer. I'm not sure anymore if I answered that question. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. And I think it, the, the, the synergy key is the fact that when you're eating the foods all together, as you've stated, food first, you're getting the micronutrient cofactors together that the body wants, sort of like the tryptophan to serotonin story. You're going to get B6C, folate, you know, all in concert. So to me, I think that's the major point behind why you are a big fan of food first. I know Dr. Weil and Dr. Mays and everyone else I've learned from over the years had such a heavy influence in the fellowship and other places on food is key. And then, so then segue into now your research. So you sat there and you clearly said food first, but society is not getting the food the way they need to be because of the various reasons. And there's many of them. So yeah, you started segueing into the world of now, how do we get research to understand what micronutrients can do? Well, the truth is that that didn't come from me. It came from two folks, two families in Southern Alberta who were trying to solve mental health problems in their families. And they, um, I was stuck in the what we call the scientific method, you change one independent variable at a time. Now I would call that magical thinking you know, when it comes yep. to nutrition, right? But I, it made sense to me because that's the way I was trained too. You, wouldn't, you just don't, you don't change a lot at once. You change one thing at a time. These families came from a different background and one of them came from an animal nutrition background and they knew that for optimal farm animal health, you give a broad spectrum of nutrients all together and in balance. And it's very, very well studied where I live in cattle country here. And so it's a big issue keeping our cattle and hogs healthy. So um, they were the ones who said, well, if we don't know if this is gonna help these children, now we're over onto humans, um, but let's, let's go at it the same way. Let's give these kids the whole spectrum of vitamins and minerals. And so they just went to 
drugstores and online sources and gave a whole spectrum of vitamins and minerals and lucked into very quickly um, some big successes and then said, well, the psychiatrists in our province, they have to know about this and we have to get some research done so they'll believe it. And that's how they landed in my um, living room actually uh, in 1996 and said, uh, we think we're onto something here. Look and look at what we've done. It seems to be helping people. Could you do some research? And that's how I got into it. But then I started really, I had always been interested in nutrition. My first publication in 1972 was called Malnutrition and Mental Deficiency. So this had always been my interest, but they brought this new way of looking at it uh, to my living room, as I say. And so then I started looking at the literature and, and with my colleagues, we published a review of all the research in mental illness that related to the use of micro, of, we didn't use the term then, but let's say my, minerals and vitamins. Going back to 1929, I think was the oldest publication. And in the scientific literature, you would swear from about 1929 to 2000, you would think with each new publication that they had made a new discovery. Oh, we gave this group manganese. Isn't that interesting? One or two of them got better. We gave this group calcium. Oh, one or two got better with every publication. And so then it began to make sense that giving, and, and I reviewed everything I knew about and had learned earlier about neurophysiology. I just thought this makes perfect sense. Let's study a broad, the broad spectrum of minerals and vitamins that we know our brains need. But because of that, Chris, we could not get funding for years because NIH, for example, to name, uh, not that I applied to NIH for this, but some of my American, American colleagues did, they said, oh, go back and study one nutrient. I mean, they, their funding doors were closed because uh, they're just beginning to, open just a crack, we think. But so far, all the research that we have done, we being our micronutrient researchers around the world, has all been from private donations. And I've raised actually, now that I'm retired, I'm not doing studies. So I, I've raised over and distributed over a million dollars for other studies, because uh, we just are not to the point yet of getting grants. Which is, which is so... It's so fascinating, considering, again, if you look at all classical nutrient deficiency disorders, beriberi, pellagra, scurvy, you name it, all of them have psychiatric illness as a, as a symptom or disease yes. state. And so we have the upstream knowledge, and it, it it baffles me. And I guess somebody could then say, well, we know beriberi, you just need to replace that supplement, and they get better. Well, I'm sure if they actually look deep in there, there's still secondary problems that are still there, because if they were very deficient in, you know, different micronutrients, they're highly likely to have other secondary nutrients that are missing too. So they probably didn't get 100% better. And so I, I find that, you know, again, I think it comes down to the unfortunate medical complex of, indu of industrial reductionist thinking that still is so hard to get past. And it is very, very frustrating. So talk about the results of some of these studies. Yeah. So our studies on broad spectrum micronutrient treatment and mental disorders really just began in 2000. Now there were a couple of studies in school children from a fellow in California named Schoenballer, which were of that type. But 
all the others, and that was like 1998, but other, everything else has been from the year 2000. And that's what we review in our book. For the lay public, it's not a sciencey book, but what we do is try to show why it makes sense that you need broad spectrum. And then we review the individual studies. Now, here's the thing, in, in our world, and <laughs> we're, we're all bound by the DSM, when you're doing a study, if you want to get it published in a good medical or scientific journal, generally you've got to select people who meet criteria for a particular disorder. <laughs> so we keep doing that, but um, it is, and so I, I wanna say to you that, oh, it helps with this kind of disorder and that kind of disorder. But you know, the, the main uh, area that is ameliorated the best is transdiagnostic. What, what we have shown across roughly, I think there are probably 70 or more studies now, most of them with the formulas that came out of these two family businesses in, in Southern Alberta, but there are other formulas like the one used in California, there's one from Arizona, there are some that have been used in the UK, <clears throat> pardon me. But what we all have shown is a transdiagnostic impact on showing better control of emotions. So what does that mean? That means you can treat explosive rage, irritability, anger management, um, ups and downs of mood. And it doesn't matter, we might select a group of people, well, for example, as Julia Rutledge did for her first ADHD trial it was in adults, they were selected for meeting criteria for ADHD and she studied her primary outcome. You have to register your clinical trial as a randomized blinded trial, et cetera. She was using one of the Alberta formulas. And of course the people who, when they broke the blind had gotten so much be better, not all of them, because there's no magic with broad spectrum either. You know? So not everybody shows benefit, but definitely much greater improvement with effect sizes, usually around 0.6 to 0.7. Uh, which is a good solid medium to, to high effect size. Those people were the ones who had taken the active supplement and the ADHD symptoms got better. But a quarter of her sample, as her sample met criteria for clinical depression. So they did a post hoc analysis and said, well, we weren't looking for depression. We didn't select for depression. What happened with depression? Well, it's dramatic that depression got better and that part of the sample that met criteria for depression. They're all, people are always coming back to us and saying, yeah, I know I got better in these areas that you were studying, but why didn't you ask me about my energy? Why didn't you, my brain fog has listed, lifted. We don't have a measure of brain fog. By the way, that's something that should be studied now with long mm -hmm. COVID. And mm -hmm. nobody, I, we need more researchers interested in this, Chris. If there are people out there listening, um, that's a great, student thesis to see if the brain fog of long COVID would be lifted with a broad spectrum formula. Anyway, long story short, we have quite a few studies now and they are so much more effective than single nutrients. And we have the first little gap, <laughs> like a, a ray of light coming from one of the National Institutes of Health funding um, a K23 scholar award for uh, Jenny Johnstone to continue her research in this area. So we think things are getting more open. We hope. Yeah. I would love to see a, a study 
Chris, Dr. Christopher Palmer at Harvard, yeah. you know, he's working with, you know, ketogenic diets and other, uh, you know, situations elimination wise of food triggers, right. For folks with schizoaffective disorder and some pretty serious issues, right? So he can get the studies approved because these are disorders that are very treatment resistant. How interesting would it be to have two arms of his studies doing one where it is the diet with a placebo pill and then the diet plus a broad spectrum micronutrient supplement and then and then a, a control group? I think that would probably be another log step up in success rate yeah. um, based on, again, based on all the upstream pathophysiology, it just makes, it just makes sense. And again, maybe it turns out it doesn't, but in the meantime, why not look? I mean, that just mm -hmm. makes so much sense to me based on everything I'm reading at the, again, for me, the immune inflammatory uh, enzymatic pathway, I, I don't disentangle them at all. And for me, I think that's going to be a big piece moving forward is how much of this stuff turns out to be immune metabolic inflammatory based on cofactor weakness. And this is where I want to segue you next a little bit, um, unless you have anything more to say about the the products. Uh, no, I just want to say, because I, I am not affiliated with products and the Alberta, the ones from Southern Alberta, um, they're in our book, but Julie and I have never taken any money. And in fact, they don't fund any research because we are, uh, I'm old enough to have watched how Big Pharma polluted, in my opinion, corrupted the uh, scientific literature on mental health. And I didn't want these micronutrients to go that way. Um, no, I just wanted to say that I have a list of potential studies. So uh, right now, the shortage is, is not money. I'm not even trying to raise more funds right now from donors. I We need more researchers who are willing to right. look into this. Yeah. Yeah. He, so, he was so, the first person that came to mind on yeah. how interesting would that be to add an arm like your work to it. And and I appreciate you adding that you have not taken any money because that's always the first thing people will say, oh, well, this is ridiculous. She's being paid. So she's, you know, pre-focused. Bonnie Kaplan is, is on the take. And so yeah. for me, you know, just like me with this podcast, I have zero money coming in. This is all my passion and joy to give away. So if somebody thinks I have a, a bias, well, show me where my bias is coming from other than my open-mindedness. Maybe that's my bias. Um but but I do find that interesting. So let's segue a little bit into mm. mitochondrial health because I know you, as you stated mm. offline before we started, that you have a a selective passion a little bit for mitochondrial health. Yeah. How does the mitochondria play such an oversized role in the brain? And I know mm. the you, you you'll get into how many mitochondria are in the brain compared to other parts, but. Let's let let the audience understand and 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 even you know everybody's heard on this podcast what a mitochondria is, but just break it down anyway, just in case somebody doesn't know exactly what that is. Okay, so mitochondria are just so totally fascinating. First of all, they look really interesting <laughs> if you ever look at a diagram of one, even. And secondly, they're so incredible. They're they're independent little organisms which we have in. I don't think there's a single cell in the human body or brain which does not have at least one mitochondrion. And many cells have multiple ones. And they produce the energy and the energy molecules, ATP. That energy molecule is so important. It is our innate um, weapon against excessive inflammation, for example. But let me back up. Let, let's, let's talk about how they work. Um, without going into a, a lot of detail, 
there are things that people in your audience might have heard of, like the Krebs cycle, and they might have heard of the electron transport chain. Well, the Krebs cycle takes one of the byproducts from the um, tryptophan pathway we were talking about, which is called acetyl coenzyme A. It's a critical component, component that goes into um, the inner mitochondrial membrane inside of it. And it releases electrons, which are then marched through the electron transport chain. The end product, I'm really simplifying, and I know you could do this better, Chris, but the end product is this energy molecule, ATP. Without ATP, we are dead. I mean, it's as simple as that. We have to have ATP. But um, I, I'm getting into too much detail. So let me, let me just finish my answer with an anecdote. So um, a while ago, I was looking at an article that talked about the importance of um, ATP and the importance of inflammation. And in fact, the title was something like, is depression an inflammatory disorder? And you know how in scientific papers, the tradition is in the end of a discussion paper, you talk about the implications for the future. So I'm looking at the implications for the future, expecting them to say, so we need to look at how to improve our production of ATP if, if inflammation is so important in terms of mood, but they didn't. They said, and so now we need to develop some drugs that will produce ATP. And I thought, how can they have, how can people think like that? It's as you were saying a moment ago, the body doesn't make mistakes, but we people do. And if you want to improve ATP production and flight, fight inflammation, one of the things you wanna do is feed more micronutrients into those mitochondria so that they produce ATP. You also wanna do things like eat the right whole foods so that you're, you know, which are prebiotics, right, which are going to improve the life and health of the healthy gut bugs so that you have less inflammation. I mean, all of these things fit together and I'll bet you're gonna throw in something about the immune system too. Well, I'm, gonna, I'm actually, before I go there, I wanna bring you back to what you were stating earlier about phytonutrients. So oh. the mitochondria, as you clearly stated, is this energy powerhouse. And anytime we produce energy, there's always a byproduct right? You burn gasoline in a car, you get the gas release plus the water, you need oil to deal with it all. So the mitochondria is no different. It releases oxidants, right? And so these right. are oxygen molecules that have electrons that are sort of what we call radical, and they like to cause damage. And so tell people what happens when you consume phytonutrients in this process. Well, I'm not sure I'm going to have an adequate answer for you. Here's what I usually say about phytonutrients. They are the one of the best reasons on earth for getting people to focus on getting your nutrients through real food because there are thousands of them. I don't think they all have names yet. I know not that we don't know the function of all of them yet, but mother nature knows and mother nature packaged them with the micronutrients in our crops. So that's why we need to eat whole foods, one of many reasons. But some of the phytonutrients whose role, and this is what I think you're asking me about, whose uh, functions have been described, shows that they're antioxidants. And especially some of the um, uh, anthocyanins, the ones with the dark purples and the blues, et cetera, we know that they're so good at scarfing up those 
reactive oxygen species, which otherwise no are known to damage our cells. And I think also damage our DNA. I'm not sure yeah. of that. Yeah. yeah, and I think and I think that's the critical piece that you're stating right there is because I I was told once an analogy that a oxygen radical is like a single guy walking into a couple's dance party. All the couples are happily dancing and the single guy walks in and he's trying to split apart a couple to go dance with one of the women. And so an electron radical is trying to do the same thing to cell membranes and other things. So the only way to stop that is to have another bouncer come in, which happens to be the phytonutrient antioxidant that comes and grabs that electron by sharing another electron with it in the physics realm. And then says, okay, you're no longer radical. You can no longer split a couple. There's no more damage. And so for me, the reason I now care about that immunologically to your point mm -hmm. is that if those mitochondria stay healthy, they are less likely to then trigger inflammation because a dead mitochondria spills its guts. And one of the things that it spills is ATP and many other things. And those are alarm signals to the innate immune system. They, we have receptors that grab, tolic receptors, they're called, or pattern recognition receptors, which actually grab these molecules. And they are a direct signal to the immune system. Damage has occurred here. Come in and finish it off. Well, if you have a lot of that damage going on, which COVID showed, the innate immune system goes nuts and we end up with problems. And I think this is going to turn out to be one of the main mm -hmm. pieces of brain fog. And there's a gentleman I interviewed named Peter Rowe at Johns Hopkins, who does a lot of work in chronic fatigue, a lot of work in chronic fatigue syndrome and long COVID. And I think one of the things they're going to eventually figure out is that mitochondrial damage is driving brain fog at the cellular level, but that remains to be seen. That's a hypothesis mm -hmm. that is not proven. Mm -hmm. So somebody I, I, needs I, to do some work on brain fog without drugs, with natural uh, approaches, right? Absolutely agree. And uh, Alessio mm -hmm. Fasano and his work with non-celiac gluten sensitivity and celiac disease, clearly there's an association with certain foods triggering brain fog. And so I think there's a lot more to this and it's not something we can unpack even remotely now, let alone maybe even in five years, but it's coming. And I think that reality is is not lost on the researchers like Dr. Palmer doing ketogenic diets, because what you're doing by doing a ketogenic diet to some extent is not only increasing fat, which may provide a lot of energy source via ketones, but you're actually removing a lot of foods in that process. And by the removal may be more even powerful <clears throat> to the system than just the fat. And that again is speculation. I think it's true, but it remains to be seen. So the other thing that I, you haven't stated that I know you will, but I'm going to push you there now. When we do drug work, right? We give drugs and every single drug on the planet comes with a side effect profile that they have to read at the end of a commercial, which drive me nuts. I think direct to consumer advertising should be taken away. It's insanity. Mm -hmm. But you read the package insert for Paxil, right? And Paxil says you could have 900,000 things go wrong. What are the side effects of a broad spectrum micronutrient treatment pro program? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, just think about the logic here. Um, if we had uh, common adverse events happening as a result of consuming vitamins and minerals, you'd have to question evolution. <laughs> it just wouldn't make sense. We right. need those micronutrients. But of course, every product is still, you have to monitor that. So we published quite a lot of data um, uh, going back to about, I think my first publication on six data sets uh, was around 2008 or something. 
Um, and then every trial since then, um, they, they monitor adverse events and there are, uh, there, there has never been an, a serious adverse event. Early versions of some of the formulas caused nausea um, and uh, some of them, it was because they, it was before they figured out how to really finally grind up the minerals. They were kind of bulky and they were, you know, and people need to know never to take vitamins and minerals on an empty stomach. You should always take them with food for a variety of reasons. But other than that, there's never been a serious adverse effect. One study that was a retrospective um, uh, case control study of people with uh, on the autism spectrum uh, that I was, I was involved just in the um, analysis of that, we were able to compare adverse events between two groups of people, one treated with medication, one treated with micronutrients, and the people treated with medication had six times as many adverse events as those given micronutrients. You're always going to get, people are, you know, in studies have to report every headache, every tummy ache that they have, um, every, I mean, even for their ethics committees, if they slip on the ice and break their foot, they have to report this as an adverse event. Um, that's literally happened. So it's not, as far as we know, they're just completely safe. Yeah. And I'm a big fan of of the world of mother nature, evolution, what was intended. Because I think, you know, I remember Dr. Weil, uh, Andy was saying once in a lecture early on, he said, you know, cocaine comes from a leaf and there are 12 nutrients in that leaf. One of which is cocaine that we isolate out and then we make a drug with. And that's why we have huge side effects with that because there's no anti-nutrients, right? In that, so there's no competitive nutrient. In the coca leaf, there are six pro and six negative competing chemicals, molecules. And so it's very hard to toxify yourself from the coca leaf. Mm. Whereas if you synthesize out or medicine wise, reduce out one single chemical and then you give it a huge dose, well, then it could be, become toxic. So nature did not provide a substance on the planet that would kill you. Although there are some that exist, right? Cocaine was something humans decided to do lifestyle wise to hurt themselves. And I think that gets back to our earlier point that you were stating that the body doesn't make mistakes in general, the humans make mistakes that allow the body then to show us disease as, as, as sort of like pain. I think pain is one of the greatest teachers on the planet. If we would only listen to it, we just choose not to listen to it. And that's an unfortunate reality of human, human behavior. You know, if you kick the wall hard and your toe hurts, stop kicking the wall. Mm -hmm. Motrin's not your answer. It's the kicking of the wall. That's the problem. And, and so, yeah, I think those are really fascinating truisms about nature and, and, and health in general. So talk to me a little, guys. No, I'm just saying that's a really interesting analogy. Thank you. I'm taking notes. <laughs> no problem. Talk to me when you're finished with taking your notes I'm, about I'm the Alberta pregnancy and nutrition. Oh. Well, uh, somewhere along the line, when I was uh, first studying broad spectrum micronutrients, I became very convinced that um, we, we had some horrible examples in Canada, and I know you have them down there too, women who became really postpartum psychosis led them to kill their children. Um, and, you know, it just made no sense. This is beyond depression. And by the way, most postpartum depression is anxiety more than depression. And so it seemed to me very likely that um, what other people in the, again, agricultural world were telling me was true, which is that 
uh, pregnancy is when the, you know, the fetus is preferentially fed and it is just psyching, uh, sucking the nutrients right out of the mother because everything she eats goes preferentially to the fetus. And then combine that with the hormonal shift of birth, which is huge, that surely adding additional micronutrients, not in the prenatal vitamins, but postnatally should have an impact. And I wanted to study um, using broad spectrum micronutrients in postpartum women. Well, <laughs> postpartum women are often breastfeeding. I had regulatory issues up the wazoo. There was no way I was going to be able to do that. And so I had the opportunity, there was a big grant uh, competition in my province. I had the opportunity to get a very large grant of $5 million, assemble a group of 13 scientists to not to treat the women, but to study them. So it was not what I really wanted to do, but <laughs> the Alberta Pregnancy Outcomes and Nutrition cohort was born uh, because of that competition in 2008. And uh, we set up a really good prospective longitudinal trial. Um, we did it because, actually, I should acknowledge my PhD student at the time, Brenda Leung, who scoured the earth for somebody doing, there are a lot of longitudinal pregnancy cohorts out there, somebody studying mental health of the woman throughout pregnancy. The most we could find were some Scandinavian studies that would sample that one time. Well, ask any woman who's been pregnant and you know that mood and anxiety vary a lot across the trimesters. So we set up a really thorough, I, I think a very good cohort. Um, but then I retired <laughs> and as I was preparing for retirement, uh, I turned the leadership of that over to a wonderful scientist, Dr. Nic Nicole Latorno. And so they are continuing. I think the children now are, uh, many of them are eight years old. And they, if anyone wants to look at the kinds of research that they've been generating, looking at nutrition and relationship to brain development and health of the mother, uh, you can go to apronstudy.ca and they keep a running list of their publications and what they're doing. So I was able to contribute establishing that cohort, but I couldn't study what I wanted and no one has yet except Julia Rutledge, but the study's not done yet. And that is finding out whether or not broad spectrum micronutrients could actually curtail mental health problems in pregnant women or postpartum. Yeah, so it'd be beautiful to see waiting, the research. <clears throat> we're waiting to see, yeah, but she gets uh, things done in New Zealand that um, some of us in North America have a little more trouble. Uh, well, I'll be waiting say. on pins and needles for yeah. a hopefully quickly shared uh, answer when that stuff comes. I'd love to see some early preprints, but um, yeah, I I, uh, I think your work has been exceptional um, and it is a testament to you, the longevity of your work, how much time you've spent, how many publications you've had, your thought process. One of my favorite uh, guest types is an anthropology background. And that's because anthropology undergrads or grad students tend to see the world through a lens that makes the most sense. And you strike me as somebody mm -hmm. who has a mindset like an anthropologist. And I have no idea. I've not looked at your CV. Don't know what you had anything, but it, it, it is a 
a view of the world that offers the ability for somebody to break down ideas in a different way that I think is what is key. And you have done that. And so for that, I'm very grateful for your, for your work. But before I end with you today, I want to be conscious of your time. I do have one quick question that I want to add. And um, the question I ask all my guests, and this was going all the way back to the beginning. If you had a golden ticket, and you could give it to the president or Congress of the United States to have a law enacted that would have a massive feed forward effect on mental health or the health of children. What would you ask for? And I'll tell you mine while you think. Mine would be very simple. I would go hard at children's school lunches from K through 12. There would be no processed food allowed in school. Kids would eat super, super healthy, especially considering the volume of children in the United States who have 66% of their meals served at the school, breakfast and lunch. And so we have a captive audience to heal their gut, their everything, their brains. So I would want that change first and foremost. All right, with that, what would you want to do? Well, I would say that I agree with you 100%, but I don't think you'll have the lasting effect you want unless you add in my little piece, which is to tell them why. Tell them that they are eating to feed their brains, tell them what cofactors are, teach them about mitochondrial function, because people tell me that they forget, I mean, I've had literally had people say to me, I'm gonna forget everything else you said, Bonnie, but now that I understand what micronutrients do in the brain, I'm going to look at food differently. That is going to change my life. So do that and then feed them better too. And I'm, I'm with you all the way. All right. So the Congress just got a, a, a bill passed to educate every child and their parents in school about why cofactors and nutrients are important. And then you're tied to me. We get the food in there. We've now changed society in a very good way. I love it. Mm-hmm. Well, Bonnie, I am just tickled at how much fun this conversation was. So you have written a great book, The Better Brain with Dr. Julia Rucklidge. Um, I know it's available on Amazon and many other places. You also have a website where people can follow you. I think you told me it was Bonnie J. Kaplan, B-O-N-N-I-E-J-K-A-P-L-A-N.com, correct? Correct. Correct. I, I love it. So any last parting words to the audience and... Um, Again, I'm just supremely grateful for your time and your efforts over the years to teach the world about this process of eating healthy and taking care of yourself. Well, I just want to say you are a great interviewer because you have a depth of knowledge that many of my interviewers don't have. And uh, and I've taken a lot of notes here to think about how I could be enhancing the things I say. On my website, I'd like your audience to know that um, they can contact me on the contact tab and that there are lots of lectures and there's even a five minute video of how brain metabolism works. So even if they just have five minutes, maybe they'll look at that. It will be added to the show notes on my next newsletter, which is probably going to be a long one because it's going to be hard to distill down all of this work in a small newsletter. It might have to be two or three weeks worth, but it'll be linked there for anyone who wants to follow it. Bonnie, my esteem to you. Thank you so much. My, I am so grateful. You are absolutely fantastic. And again, from Canada, I know signing off there, I'm in North Carolina, so a long way away, but Zoom does an amazing job bringing us close together. And I'm so grateful for you. Certainly does. And thank you, Chris. It's great what you're doing. Have a great day. Okay, thanks. 
So an excellent discussion with Dr. Bonnie Kaplan. And I want to follow up with a couple things. So she shared with me a six-point summary of the role of nutrition in mental health. And the summary is based on approximately 65 peer-reviewed studies. Her points are this. Number one, dietary intake is correlated with mental health. There are at least 12 epidemiologic studies at the population level demonstrating this relationship. In one Canadian study, the relationship held across just a three-day period in adults with mood disorders. The higher their mineral and vitamin intake, the better their general mental functioning. Another Canadian study in children also found that the better the healthy eating index, the fewer worries and sadness the grade five children reported. And I tend to note this in my clinic. I can tell you that the vast majority of the kids that I see that eat super healthy have significantly less mental health disorder, dis, uh, dysthymia, mental health challenges as those children that are struggling with very restrictive dietary intakes. And again, these are not simple things to tease out because there's a lot of variables that also go along with not eating well. But that being said, it's a big piece. She states, number two, improving dietary intake results in improved mental health. Three randomized controlled trials have shown that adults with depression improve their diet have significantly less depression. In one of the studies, 32% of the participants actually went into remission in just 12 weeks. And of course, there were no side effects. Number three, supplementing with B-complex vitamins improves resilience in the normal population when they are under stress. At least eight randomized controlled trials worldwide have demonstrated decreased stress, depression, and anxiety in adults who are not clinically diagnosed with a disorder, but who report high stress levels. Some of these studies have been done after natural disasters, floods, earthquakes, and the like, and should influence policymakers dealing with such crises. Number four, supplementing with full spectrum or of approximately 30 minerals and vitamins reduces symptoms across all psychiatric diagnoses. The improvements have been documented in more than 45 peer-reviewed studies. Symptoms most clearly improved are mood dysregulation, explosive rage, irritability, and aggression. Three placebo-controlled randomized trials on children with ADHD reported large effect sizes. Five, the mechanism by which nutrients improve brain function are well known. All metabolic reactions are dependent upon the presence of sufficient cofactors, which are minerals and vitamins, for the synthesis of breakdown of neurotransmitters. Essential fatty acids, critically important for brain cell structures, along with minerals and vitamins, are also responsible for optimal production of energy, molecule ATP, and our mitochondria, one natural homeostatic mechanism for controlling excess inflammation. These functions of nutrients in human brain are well-established and described in basic biochemistry textbooks. Six, there is a financial imperative to pay attention to this research. In two extensively documented cases, health economists show that nutrient treatment costs less than 10% of the patient's previous and ineffective conventional care. In children aged 10 to 11, Canadian research demonstrated that for every one of nine health behaviors followed, six of which involved diet, there was a 15% decrease in medical appointments for mental health problems two years later. And I can dovetail on this with my own research uh, ends of ones in my clinic with random children throughout my 23-year existence that the children who follow basic simple principles of eating a whole food, minimally processed diet, taking some basic supplements, usually targeted, uh, targeted B vitamins, magnesium, zinc, vitamin D, and then increasing exercise as well as working on some stress reduction techniques has incredible effects on downstream 
problems that we see as mental health disorders, right? And I subscribe to the reality that I don't think there's one way to fix a problem. I think there's multiple ways because we're doing a lot of things wrong. And going after all of these things upstream is the better answer than putting a drug into the system that has minimal capabilities of fixing multiple problems that are upstream. So with that, you know, I, I think her work is excellent in the sense that it gives us a framework to try, right? What's the downside of trying a, a multi-mineral um, mixed synergistic micronutrient supplement for somebody who has mental health issues when the side effect profile is very low? Give it a one, two, three month trial, you know, and see how your patient does. This can be done in concert with the standard medical therapy that is going on, including behavioral uh, therapy events, as well as drugs, right? So there, there is, to me, little to no downside of trying a multimineral, multinutrient supplement in somebody who's struggling. You know, clearly, if the patient is suicidal or has any major, major problems going on, they need to remain in psychiatric care and probably be on medicine. But there is, to me, zero downstream risk of giving this a trial in patients. And I think, you know, the biochemistry makes sense. The biological plausibility makes sense. You know, and the synergy, I think, is the key as to why so many other studies have failed to show an outcome benefit. Uh, so for me, I, I really like where this all goes. You know, it was a very interesting conversation uh, unpacking the state of mental health all the way to what the greedy brain, what the greedy brain really needs and, and how we're, you know, taking this system of our brain and frankly messing it up through our lifestyle choices. So with that, you know, her, her book, The Better Brain with Julia Rutledge is available. I encourage you to get a copy of it. I'm going to do some more work on her uh, information over the next coming weeks in the newsletter and also in the newsletter audio cast. So stay tuned. As always, uh, I appreciate your time and hug those kids. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional. It is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue and does not constitute the formation of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.